Nehemiah 5. The topic, Nehemiah calls everyone to assemble after the workers on the wall accuse the wealthy Jewish businessmen of profiting from their hardships. The title of our message, Accusers Assemble. All right. Do you actually get that? First service, no one got that. I had to take a five-minute break and summarize all 22 movies. But anyway, (laughs) let's pray. Father, thanks for our service thus far. Sweet singing with the saints that uh, rises before you as incense and brings you pleasure, Lord. What a a great thing to, to be involved with. We have your word open before us now. Pray that you would speak to us in that place where only you can communicate between the soul and the spirit and that Jesus would be revealed to our hearts in a new and precious way. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. It's not business as usual for some of the top companies in the nation. Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby are closed on Sundays. In-N-Out puts Bible verses on its packaging. At Interstate Batteries, their mission statement is, quote, to glorify God. Purchase clothing from Forever 21, and you may notice John 3.16 printed on your shopping bag. Tyson's Farms, and I quote, strive to uh, to honor God and be a faith-friendly company. Some of those companies go beyond proclaiming the gospel. Since the year 2000, Tyson has employed approximately 120 office chaplains who are there to provide compassionate pastoral care to employees. You might say it's business unusual for those companies. Now, we're in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. On account of their commitment to rebuild Jerusalem's ruined wall, the workers had no time to farm. Their crops failed, leading to scarcity. They couldn't pay the heavy taxes levied by Persia. They were reduced to borrowing money. The more well-to-do Jews, shrewd businessmen, saw an opportunity to profit. They offered loans, but they were charging illegal interest and then foreclosing on properties when the borrowers fell behind. In some cases, the borrowers chose to sell their children into indentured servitude in order to keep up with the payments. The wealthy were conducting business as usual at a time that called for the unusual. Maybe you own a company. Most of us don't. But we all do business in the world. And though we will talk about money, By business, we mean all of our activities in the world as we await the Lord. We are God's ongoing building project, and by we, I mean each of us individually and all of us corporately. Our business should be unusual as we await the return of the king. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, if it's business as usual, the earth is what you treasure. But number two, if it's business unusual, heaven is what you treasure. Let's take a look at treasuring things on the earth in verses 1 through 8. Now, the book of Nehemiah, it's an accurate history, but it and the entire Old Testament is so much more than that. The Apostle Paul reminded us that, and this is from Romans 15, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so we're always to read the Old Testament with an eye to giving us illustrations and examples of some of the doctrinal statements or other statements in the New Testament. Now, the episode we're about to encounter seems to be a great example and illustration of something Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. 
There in chapter 6, you remember him saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The workers on the wall, would you say they treasured heaven or earth? The wealthy, as I've described them thus far, would you say that they treasured heaven or the earth? Simple but memorable illustration of Jesus' words. One group was building for God, looking heavenward, while the other was building bigger barns for themselves on the earth. And so we begin in verse 1, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. Now I get the impression that this situation was unknown to Nehemiah until something happened that triggered a great outcry. It never crossed his mind that Jews would take advantage of their brethren especially while they were working for God. Good for him for believing the best. Why mention the wives? It seems unusual. Women normally refrain from open complaining in proper submission to their husbands. But things were so bad, even godly wives had to give voice to it. As I mentioned, we'll see that they were having to sell their children into servitude. And that's enough to get a godly wife up and talking. And so this became a huge outcry among the people. Problems in the church between believers, they always shock us, and they should, because we are charged to maintain unity in peace. At the same time, take a look at the first century church, and you'll see that it was rife with strife. Not to criticize first century believers, I never criticize the church because it's Jesus' bride. But a lot of, there's, there's always a push to be more like the New Testament church, to be more like the early church, the church of the first century. The only church you'd really want to be like, is, according to Jesus' letters, is the church at Smyrna that was undergoing tremendous suffering. All the other six churches got a rebuke from Jesus because of some of the behaviors that were going on in it. And so take that with a grain of salt. When people want to go back to the practices and what the new early church was doing, just take it with a grain of salt. It's what the church has always done in its own culture. There's nothing magical about the early church. Uh, It had just the same problem. In fact, it had massive problems. Uh, If you're talking about the power and the energy and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, well, sure, every generation needs that. But uh, we're going to have problems. They can be overcome. Don't think it's strange, but at the same time, let's deal with it. And so verse 2, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. Now we saw in the last chapter that the people worked on the wall from daybreak until the stars appeared. And because of the threat of attack from enemies, the workers whose homes and lands were outside of Jerusalem were staying in town rather than going home. And so their houses and their lands were uh, unattended. No one called craft services for catering. Basic needs of food were not being made available to them. What they're saying here is that our families are hungry. We work all day until the stars come out and we have to buy our own food. Any food would have to be purchased, adding to their impoverishment. There's a scene in the baseball film Moneyball in which players discover the Oakland A's are so pathetic a franchise you have to buy your own beverages and food from vending machines. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. They claim that's not true, 
but they weren't quite that pathetic. But uh, it, 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 it's a dramatization that makes the point. So these highly paid professional ballplayers are looking for some food and they have to go out into the hallway and put quarters into the machine to get a snack. And so that's the situation here, except there were no machines, there were no taco trucks. Uh, they had to go wherever you go to get food and uh, they probably didn't get much of it and they were spending what little money they had. So verse three, there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy the grain we need because of the famine. Faithful to the work, the workers did not quit. They mortgaged property for the money that they needed. Now, when we were in our building project at Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino, this is back in the early 1980s, several of us went to Pastor Don McClure in Redlands to ask him if he would approach Pastor Chuck Smith about lending us money. Don wanted to know which of us had second mortgaged our houses before we came to ask him. It was a very short meeting. Later, a couple of guys in the fellowship who were contractors on their own and with no knowledge of our meeting with Don came to a meeting and told us that they had second mortgaged a rental property they owned and they gave the money towards the building project. Now, I'm not saying it is always necessary to do something like that, but what I am saying is this, and this is really the whole study right here, so if you, you know, just pay attention for the next few minutes. If you think you'd never do something like that because it doesn't make good business sense, then you're stuck in the business as usual group. You would identify with the wealthy Jews in this story, and that's definitely not where you want to be. And so up until this point, you think, oh, those terrible wealthy Jews. I certainly would never take advantage of my brother, maybe, but what are you willing to do in order to uh, do what God is telling you to do? And I'm not suggesting that this isn't, we're not going to morph now into a building program (laughs) where, although I'm thinking that a curtain could come down right now with a giant thermometer or something like that. (laughs) Who's willing to mortgage their house right now? I've got the paperwork. We're not doing that. We don't go, we don't roll that way, I guess you'd say. Uh, But uh, that's the crux of the matter is, is that there are times when you're going to have to do the unusual for God financially. And so verse four. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Taxes were due regardless their crop losses. There were no subsidies. There was no help for farmers from Persia. There was just tax to be paid. Verse five, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. This is the big reveal that it was their own flesh, meaning their own fellow Jews, who were treating them this way, uh, mortgaging their property and then foreclosing on it, leaving them no assets except their children to sell into slavery. Bottom line, it was a great opportunity to grow your uh, your portfolio. I was surprised to learn that the commonly used phrase, bottom line, It's relatively recent in origin. It is an American phrase, originally coined in the mid-1960s by corporate America. It describes the last line of a profit and loss statement where the final numerical figure is placed, showing whether a company made a profit or took a loss, whether they're in the black or in the red. 
If you are always looking to the bottom line, then you're not looking up. You're not looking heavenward. Do you think that Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A was looking to the bottom line when deciding to close on Sunday? In that meeting, did that say, I've got a killer idea for raking in the dough? (laughs) We're going to close on Sunday when most people are off and would want to go and spend an unusual amount of time looking at craft supplies that are mind-bending. The average Hobby Lobby has 70,000 items in it, and I can never find one. <laughs> and, and they have one of all those 70,000, so God forbid you need more than that, but not to dish ho- this Hobby Lobby, but think about it. If that were true, then more businesses would follow suit and say, hey, look at the money these guys are raking in by closing on Sunday, let's follow suit. As far as I know, not too many businesses are closed on Sunday except Chick-fil-A. And so they do it for what the people call religious regions. And they uh, have an advantage uh, of God's blessing. I'm sure they're doing well financially, but it is not a smart financial move to close one day of the week. I didn't see Mary Poppins returns, but I've seen the original enough times to know that George Banks getting fired by the bottom line bankers was the best thing that could have happened to him. It set him free to understand a greater purpose for his life. Bottom line can be an anchor that hinders spiritual building in and through your life. You've got the tuppence in your hand, but it's holding you prisoner to material things. And so verse six, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Anger was a proper response. But not anger that lashes out or loses control. That's sin. It can't be excused by saying you were righteously angry, and so that's how I reacted. You know, I've used this excuse, and hopefully you never have. You probably haven't because you're a lot more spiritual than me. But uh, if something, you do some, maybe get angry or some other emotion that's outside of the realm of, of biblical Christianity, and you, have you said, that's just the way I am? Well, you know what? That's the problem. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's making you someone else. He's changing you from just the way you are. Nobody likes you just the way you are, except Jesus. And he's willing to put up with you. The rest of us aren't. And so get a handle on that stuff. After serious thought, so he let himself calm down, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. I should point out that scholars debate the meaning of usury in this passage. Most agree that it means charging interest on the loans. But if so, in Deuteronomy we read, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. And so it's a pretty blatant uh, violation of the law if that's what it means. Other scholars point out that the word translated usury isn't the normal word for interest. They say the lenders were acting more like pawnbrokers, holding the property as collateral without interest, but with the intent of foreclosing on it. And so they made loans that were more than they should have, knowing that the people wouldn't be able to repay them and that they would take over their property. Either way, these wealthy Jews were spiritually blind to the work of God. And so in verse 8, I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. 
So apparently Nehemiah and some others had purchased Jews out of slavery while the wealthy were setting up others to be sold into it. And Nehemiah says, so, so you're going to sell your brother into slavery so we can buy them out? It's a mini illustration within this passage to compare those who treasured earth versus those who treasured heaven. One group set people free. The other sent them away bound. And in a kind of a philosophical sense, if you're a person that values heaven and sees your uh, reward in heaven as something uh, to be uh, excited about, you're going to set people free as you go through life ministering to them in whatever way God uh, calls upon you. If you instead are treasuring things on the earth, you're going to hold people in bondage. You're not going to be a source of freedom for them. You're not going to be helpful to them. Christian finances. Several different resources that teach solid biblical principles. There are books and seminars. I'm not dissing any of them. In fact, most Christians would benefit by going through one of them and getting an idea of God's principles for handling finances. What I am saying is that there are times when the Lord isn't interested in your shrewd handling of finances as much as he is in your personal sacrifice to further the work of the gospel. The things you have, they are yours to do with as you please. You know, sometimes we say, well, everything I have belongs to the Lord. Yes and no. In the book of Acts, when Peter was confronting Ananias and Sapphira, he said, basically said, the things you have belong to you. They're yours. You can do as you want with them. In their case, they gave part of it to the Lord and said they gave all, and God killed them for it. And so uh, you want to return to the early church? Maybe not. (laughs) People were getting killed for lying uh, to God. And so anyway, that's a whole other story. But uh, there are times when God wants you to sacrifice to further the work of the gospel. The things you have are yours, but to do with as you please. But as you look at what pleases you by what you do with the things you have, a picture emerges. Either you treasure heaven in that picture or you treasure earth. And so take a look and ask yourself, where is my heart? Now, as we move on here, verses 9 through 19, it's, if it's business unusual, heaven is what you treasure. In the early 1980s, Pam and I were paring down our lives so that we could go into full-time ministry. Contrary to popular belief, ministry doesn't, uh, you don't really make a killing in the ministry. It's a good living. I'm not saying anything like that. I don't want anybody to come up and give me a Pentecostal handshake afterwards. Do you know what a Pentecostal handshake is? It's when you come up with uh, money in your hand and shake somebody else's hand and they take the money. So I've gotten a few of those over the years. They're always awkward. Uh, I don't need one. I'm doing fine. But, uh, but, you know, when you decide to go into the ministry, chances are you're not going to make as much money as you could or as you did. And so we were getting ready for that. So we sold our 2,000-square-foot home, and we moved into a 900-square-foot home. Or we were in escrow, I should say. Cute little house. Even though we were going backwards, the numbers weren't quite working out. We were $10,000 short in escrow to complete the deal. Or were we? because some couple unexpectedly deposited $10,000 into our account and the deal closed. This ministry stuff seemed pretty good to me at the time. <laughs> I, was, I was getting a hold of that. So a few years later, not many, we were Hanford bound. Our house wasn't selling, so we rented it to a couple from Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino, and then after a few months, I approached them about buying it. When the appraisal came in, Can you guess how much it was below the sales price? 
it was exactly $10,000 below the sales price. God got his $10,000 back from us in order to bless them. And so I had to live with the fact that that money was never mine to begin with. It was just, it was some kind of $10,000 that's still floating around in the kingdom of God, blessing various people. Was it bad business for me to sell my house $10,000 below market? It was business as usual. Uh, It's what needed to be done at the time in order to be free to be here. And so verse nine, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? There were bigger spiritual issues than bottom line profit. The wealthy were acting against the Jews just like the surrounding nations would, but it was worse because they were price gouging their own brothers. A church should follow sound business practices. In case you're wondering if I'm leading up to some big reveal that I took the church's money and bought magic beans or... (laughs) Magic, well, I guess I could buy magic coffee beans, but I'm on a tight leash when it comes to coffee stuff. But that, that's not what we're leading up to. In fact, a church must follow sound business practices. Uh, we even, a few years ago, not only do we have our, a CPA look over our books every, every year uh, and all of that, but we had what is called a procedures audit where the CPA came in and he looked at how we do the things that we do how we count money and how we deposit the money and how we keep track of everything uh, to give us advice on maybe areas that we needed help in. And and there were only a couple of minor areas. And so we're all about the church being businesslike, paying payroll taxes, you know, all of those kinds of things. But what we are talking about is the supernatural leading to do the unusual when God confirms it. Verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Nehemiah and his guys were lending, but they were doing it according to the law and they were not charging interest or profiting in any way and they weren't demanding payback uh, anytime soon. So verse 11, restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So this sounds like they were charging 12% per annum on the loans and they were told to return it. Or it could just be a penalty assessed against the wealthy for the way they had treated them. They were told to pay it all back and to restore more than they had taken. And so verse 12, so they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So they gave their word, and Nehemiah essentially said, yeah, that's not good enough for me. I want to have this notarized. Unlike Charlie Brown, he didn't trust them to hold the football without a witness. And so verse 13, then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. We should bring back some, we should come up with some gestures of our own. What do you think? Could you see me? I could, I could since I wear my shirts untucked, I could do this. I don't know what that means, though. It's Pastor Gene shaking out his shirt. He's probably got a, an ant crawling up his belly is what it is. But anyway... They had a lot of cool, the Jews had a lot of cool gestures. You know, they wiped the dust off their feet and, and they tore their garments all the time. We need to come up with outer garments that we can tear, like with Velcro and stuff and just, 
I'm going to wear those in counseling just to threaten people, say, if, if you say something I don't like, I'm going to tear my garments off, you know. I don't know. This is how my mind works. And then God gets a hold of me and says, quit being stupid. Anyway, this assembly was like a biblical finance seminar, but it was one that was based on the unusual. I will say this about the Christian financial resources, any of them. If they don't take the unusual into account, they're going to trap you into legalism. It's all too easy to think that if you keep all of the rules, all of the principles and precepts about money, that you are pleasing God. And, and the ones I've read, and they're, they're good, there's nothing wrong with them, but they always kind of have the edge of Jesus talked more about money than anything else, and here's all the principles about money, and this is exactly how you should handle your money, and if you're not handling it just like this, then you're in sin. And, and it tends towards legalism because then you look at what you're doing and you think, I'm on board with what God says to do. Uh, but if they don't take into account that sometimes God says, now I want you to do something unusual. Because his precepts will always allow for you to keep the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you'll love your brother as yourself, right? And so there has to be an allowance for that. There has to be, even if you want to just call it wiggle room in Christian finances, what I'm saying is you can't just look at your bottom line and say, well, I'd like to help. I'd like to give to God, to his project, to his people, but it's not in my budget. And I feel like God is prompting me to do that, but he wouldn't do that because look at these principles. And again, that puts you in the wealthy Jew category rather than the worker on the wall category. All of this happened on Nehemiah's watch. Was he slacking off? I don't think so. He simply didn't know. He was counting on all the Jews to be like him. And so the chapter ends with a look at his own business unusual practices. Maybe the question would come up, well, what about you, Nehemiah? How did you handle things? Well, so verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. What three U.S. presidents refused their salary? Shout it out if you know any of them. Trump, that's an easy one, that's happening now. Two other U.S. presidents, I'm going to give you the answer before you can Google it, but anybody want to hazard a guess? Hoover. Herbert Hoover and JFK, that's right. So Kennedy, Hoover, and Trump. And you might remember that one of the greatest governors in history, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no girly man there, he refused his salary as governor of California. Nehemiah had a governor, uh, this was a government position. It had its perks. He refused to benefit from them. Is this always a must in ministry? No, but it might be necessary or prudent in certain circumstances. Just because you have the ability to do certain things or certain perks doesn't mean you should take them. Uh, it, it, it's something you have to pray about and, and come to an understanding. And so verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. In the world, position over people can lead to oppressing, uh, oppressing them. Rather, In the kingdom of God, ideas about position are inverted. You are not to lord over others. You're to consider yourself the servant of all, not the lord of all. Verse 16, indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Nehemiah didn't simply visit the wall for photo ops. He worked on it. Instead of serving him, his own servants worked on the wall. So Nehemiah was all in. Verse 17, at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. This doesn't mean that every night Nehemiah set a table for 150. At my table is a euphemism for at my expense. Undoubtedly, some ate with him, but not all every night. He uh, contributed to this from his own stipend. And so verse 18, now that which was prepared daily was one ox, six choice sheep, also fowl were prepared for me, and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. The governor's provisions were charged to the people. They're made available to the governor, but it came out of taxes that were charged to the people. Nehemiah couldn't refuse it. It was, it was something that he had to take in Persia at that time. It wasn't like a president refusing his salary, but he could share it. He didn't have to keep it for himself. Uh, verse 19, remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. He's not really looking for reward. He's acknowledging his motives for which he could trust God to reward him. He's saying, hey, look at my motives. I, I want them to be pure. And if they are, then I know that you will reward me. The term fuzzy math, first heard during the debates prior to the 2000 US presidential election, used by George W. Bush, who dismissed the figures used by his opponent, the uh, Honorable Al Gore. God uses fuzzy math. Jesus once said that a poor woman who gave two mites gave more than all the others combined. Well, she didn't, but she did from Jesus' point of view because that's the way he does math. Then there's the parable of the pearl of great price. Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchant in that story is really the Lord Jesus Christ. The field is the world, and the pearl of great price is the church. It's Christians, and it's the church. At Calvary, he sold all that he had. He gave all that he had, his total sacrifice, to buy that pearl. Jesus valued you more than the whole world, more than the entire universe. It doesn't really make sense, but it does make sense, doesn't it, that the Lord would do that because of his love. We all have business with God. For some, here today, even it may be to receive him as Savior. Today may be the day of your salvation. If, you're, if you've come to this place and you don't know that if you died right now, you'd be in the presence of the Lord, you're trusting anything or anybody other than Jesus for that, then you're here today to hear what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that though you're a sinner, Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, proving that he could forgive them and that he can offer you eternal life. Heaven sees you as a person with a terrible, filthy outer garment, nothing you can do to wash yourself or clean yourself, but the Lord can give you a robe of righteousness as he takes upon himself your filthiness. And so if you're not a Christian, that's why you're here today. As we go to prayer in a minute, please spend some time thinking through your eternal destiny. If you are a Christian, I told you earlier, very simple, figure out which group you're in. Uh, we want to apply sound business practices. We want to be good with our money. But there's going to be times when God says, hey, we need to do some unusual things, and that's going to 
uh, cause you to need to make some unusual sacrifices. Are you on board with that, or is your bottom line an anchor? Let's pray.